I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. From public books and type media, this is Primary Sources, the show where writers and intellectuals talk about some of the greatest influences on their work. I'm Al Press. My guest today is the historian Rick Perlstein. Rick is the author of a series of books on the rise of the American right, sprawling works of narrative history that are both rigorously researched and highly entertaining. Among them is Before the Storm, which examines the band of conservative activists who spearheaded Barry Goldwater's failed 1964 presidential campaign, and Nixonland, which chronicles how Richard Nixon exploited the backlash to the 1960s to forge a powerful new brand of conservative politics. On today's show, Rick talks about another historian who has deeply influenced him, Gary Wills. Wills is the author of more than 50 books on subjects ranging from Augustine's Confessions to John Wayne to Ronald Reagan. Like Rick, Wills began his career as a journalist and never received a PhD in history. In our conversation, Rick and I talk about the qualities he most admires in Wills, among them his unpredictability and his lack of deference to power. We also discuss the importance of morality in both their work and how Rick's views of the conservative movement have evolved over time. Just so you know, there will be moments where background noise can be heard during our conversation, as is sometimes unavoidable when doing remote recordings in a pandemic. Rick, it's great to have you here on Primary Sources. When did Gary Wills first start to matter to you? That's an interesting question. I think it must have been pretty quickly because I left graduate school and moved to New York in August of 1994 and have a very strong image of moving to an apartment on Prospect Park Southwest, right by Prospect Park. And before I'd done anything else, you know, gotten a job or, uh, you know, maybe even unpacked, climbing up into a tree at Prospect Park with his book Lead Time, which is a collection of his journalism in the 60s, and basically anointing, you know, my kind of vocation by reading, finishing that book as something that, you know, kind of I was there to do. So let me get this straight. You left graduate school in history. Is that mm-hmm. right? Well, I was actually in a, the program in American culture at Michigan, which was, you know, I was coming out of University of Chicago. I didn't know how to do anything. You know, I was barely an adult, you know, and all I knew from University of Chicago was how to kind of read books and think. But basically the process at and graduate school was me realizing that I wanted to write for, you know, a broader audience. So I'm imagining 
you come across wills, you're in that tree or wherever it is. Um, by the way, it's it's very interesting to hear you say Prospect Park as as a place where a graduate student in New York right, could actually exactly. live. I'm so old that I you know was paying like you know four hundred dollars a month for rent or something like that. And, I did the same thing. I yeah. lived in Park Slope and I paid four hundred dollars a month. Um, but getting back to wills, so this is a transition you realized in graduate school. You don't want to write a monograph for a small group of academic scholars you want to write for the public. Is that right? Yeah, I could definitely say that before Gary Wills was one of the role models, other ones were people doing the same thing. Basically, journalistic essayists from the 60s, people who wrote in a tradition the cliche is new journalism, but you know, whether whether that's a useful category or not. And that by the time I was uh, interested in creating a literary career for myself. They were not only my role models, um, I ended up writing about the same thing they wrote about, which was the 60s. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, there was this weird kind of double helix going on. Well, let me let me push that one step further, because in Before the Storm, your first book, which is this just incredibly gripping account of the 1964 election that Barry Goldwater loses disastrously and leads the pundits to declare conservatism dead and you show is actually the birth of the new right and the conservative movement. Um, But in that book, you actually make passing mention of Wills uh, because he was one of the young writers recruited to work at Bill Buckley's National Review. Given all of that, I wonder if you went and interviewed Wills for that book. Well, that was a little bit later. So actually, Gary Wills, I mean, he really (laughs) pops up in all different ways, you know, in all different directions in this matrix, you know. He's also a subject or a character in probably all four of my books. Either he's writing about something or he's representing an intellectual trend. So yes, he did start his career writing for National Review and thought he was probably a conservative. Of course, before that, you know, he escaped from seminary with only the suit on his back. So we want to talk about that, too. He was nearly a priest, yes. Yeah, he was nearly a priest. uh, So many interesting people were like John Kerry and and Fidel Castro. I had an idea once to write a book about people who um, grew up, and now I'm getting a little bit into Gary's biography, people who lived kind of intellectually provincial lives and discovered an intellectual vocation at church or synagogue. And basically the the only intellectual they knew was the guy who gave those sermons every week who were kind of like public intellectuals. And I think I identified with that just kind of from my reformed Jewish suburban, you know, Philistine background, you know. Uh, but um, he did that. And I hadn't thought to interview him. I wasn't living in Chicago then. I was in New York. It hadn't really occurred to me. And it just didn't seem, you know, particularly central. But by the time I got to my next book, Nixonland, you know, I was living in Chicago and I kind of was aware that this guy lived in Evanston and he was, you know, either retiring or about to retire from Northwestern. And I've, I had to meet him. You know, I had to talk to him. And that was a fascinatingly frustrating process because I wanted to talk to him about all these absolutely um, magnificent 
monumental pieces of journalism he wrote that completely stand the test of time and are just absolutely indispensable sources for what I try to get at my history, which is basically how a time feels like. Not only the politics, but the culture and the society and the economics. You know, he wrote an amazing article about the time Billy Graham and Richard Nixon did a rally together at the University of Tennessee Stadium. You know, he wrote about um, getting arrested, you know, with a bunch of writers uh, in 1972 at an anti-war protest. And he wrote about how everyone was kind of taking notes in prison for their little essays. And he said, scribble, scribble. What a crew. You know, I wanted to talk to him about, you know, his amazing book length magazine article about preparations for riots in the late 60s. And what I discovered when we sat down in a cafe in Evanston was, first of all, it was hard to keep the conversation going because so many people wanted to go up to him and say hi, readers of his, that he was you know, approachable and accessible and beloved, right? But also that he didn't want to look backwards. He did not have anything particular to say that wasn't already in the articles because he was working on something else, you know? He was writing his books about the Catholic Church and, you know, whatever, arm the guns in America. So he wasn't someone who had this kind of catalog of reflections about stuff he'd done in the past, which, you know, is reflected in his unbelievable range of writing, which keeps on changing and growing even now, you know, as he is in his 80s. I'm assuming those pieces on Nixon you're referring to are the ones he wrote, I believe, in Esquire that appear as chapters in his great book, Nixon Agonistes. That's right, which is probably my least favorite of the book. I mean, there's some amazing, important chapters in there, but the, the, the thesis does not is one of the few things he wrote that doesn't hold up, which is that Nixon represents this kind of antediluvian ideology of libertarian the economics. Man. Yeah, libertarian economics, which A, he was presumed to be completely passe, and B, probably not that huge a part of what Nixon was about, certainly compared to other people. Interesting. So it wasn't Nixon agonistes, because I recently, in, in preparation for talking to you, I went and re- reread a couple of those chapters and also the introduction to his well, you know, there's book. A, there's a really good kind of dispatch on, on the ground in New Hampshire, you know, which is a role model for how to do a kind of election dispatch. And there's a great chapter about this, you know, anti-communist priest who was very influential and a great chapter on, you know, the checker speech, which does what he does so well, which is actually do research on what actually happened, you know, and kind of cutting through the clutter of cliched memory. But that book was not an influence on me. Sorry to lead you down the wrong path there. No, no. I, first of all, I enjoyed the reading I did. And actually, I thought of that because at one point early on, he said, he depicts Nixon as a striver who bitterly resented uh, folks like the Kennedys who were kind of right, born into their right. success. But that wasn't and where that I got makes that me idea. think of your... It's not where you got that idea. No. So where did you get that idea? Tell us about Nixon, the Orthogonian, and where you got that idea. I think I, I got that idea from Fawn Brody's Psychobiography of Nixon, which was a book that she died before it was completed. It was kind of assembled after her death. I got that from someone wrote a book. I don't remember his name called The Running of Richard Nixon. I got that from interviews that were done of Richard Nixon by... Uh, one of the people who helped him with his memoir. See, that's the funny thing. I basically got it from the books that happened to be in the library when I was looking that day. And can you unpack the idea a little bit? 
Oh, sure. So there's a very robust tradition in Republican and right-wing electioneering that you can even see in Edmund Burke now that I kind of like, you know, the, the fullness of the picture uh, in which basically people who are kind of outsiders to the elite seeking entry into the elite ground their politics in resentment for the elite. Right. So when Richard Nixon goes before the public in 1969 and says there's this great silent majority of Americans who are being condescended to by the, the liberal left-wing loudmouths who hog up all the oxygen with their woke, you know, kind of protests, well, we're just the kind of ordinary hard-working strivers, you know, who kind of, you know, work hard and play by the rules, as Bill Clinton put it. So um, Richard Nixon was one of the authors of this in modern American politics, and it comes from his own experience as the brightest kid in the class coming from this poor striving family. He got a scholarship to Harvard, but his family couldn't afford to send him there. So he went to the hometown school, but he was a commuter. He couldn't afford to live in the dorms. And because he was this kind of dorky guy, he was the only kid in his grade school class who wore a tie and he complained the other kids smelled bad. Um, he couldn't get into the school's one fraternity, which was called the Franklins. And they were kind of like the big men on campus, you know? They were kind of like uh, in, in Animal House. They were the, the preppy fraternity, you know? And so he started his own fraternity of the Strivers. And the political insight at the heart of this is in a democracy, you need the most people. The most There are a lot more people who resent the elite than are, than are in the elite. And when you look at every kind of station of the cross of his rise to the top of American politics, it's marked by one of these rhetorical movements in which he draws this distinction. You know, the most distinguished example is the checkers speech, where he's really the first person to convincingly make the argument that the Democratic Party is the party of elite professionals, aristocrats, basically, like the Kennedys, right? So he starts his own fraternity called the Orthogonians, which means kind of upright, which means square, basically. And, you know, the Orthogonians are the people he talks about the checker speech. You know, he says he and his wife, you know, drive a five-year-old Oldsmobile, and she has a respectable Republican cloth coat, which, you know, is in distinction to this... Um, scandal in the Truman administration where one of Truman's chief of staff supposedly got a vicuna fur coat, you know, as a bribe. So he's basically saying, you know, the Democrats run by this egghead candidate, Adlai Stevenson, uh, are snobs. And Republicans are the party of the working class. And this is, you know, the shtick that Sarah Palin plays. Trump does it, although he has a hard time saying that he's not a part of the elite because it really makes him mad. He's like, I'm smarter than those guys. Uh, but that, you know, that is all kind of born of uh, Nixon. You know, and like I say, it even, you know, kind of goes back to Edmund Burke, who was this Irish guy who was kind of, you know, knocking to get into the, uh, the kind of Episcopalian, you know, kind of Anglican elite, you know. Uh, but, you know, certainly, even though I didn't get it from Gary Wills, he's a bit of an Orthogonian himself coming from this kind of small Michigan town. I'm a bit of an Orthogonian myself, you know. I, I like to say we're all Franklins, we're all Orthogonians. They're very plastic categories, you know. We all we all have, you know, moments in which, you know, we, we can lord it over others, and we all have moments in which we feel lorded over by others. It did strike me that Wills is from the Midwest, as, as you say. Um, but he does eventually find his way to Northwestern right. and Chicago. And, you know, I don't think that's incidental. You know, I mean, he is and I am reporting from the middle of the country, which, you know, I think has an effect on how you see the world. 
no question. As someone who grew up in Buffalo, I certainly can identify with that. Um, Wills is someone who, okay, so he starts out as conservative, but by the end of the 60s, you know, uh, on Nixon's enemies list, going to anti-war protests. Uh, but he is someone who writes about conservative figures like Nixon and Reagan in a way that is is obviously critical. He doesn't share their worldview, but he does take their ideas and their principles seriously. And I wonder if that is part of what you try to emulate and why you admire his work. Well, he takes everybody's ideas and principles seriously. I mean, he takes, you know, every intellectual inquiry he embarks upon, you know, to the radix, you know, to the root, you know. Uh, whether it's, you know, why the Catholic Church has priests but shouldn't have priests, you know, how America doesn't really have a constitution because the president has plenipotentiary power to end life on Earth with a nuclear bomb without any, any constitutional review. And when he writes about people, he often uh, is more serious about their ideas than they are themselves. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I, I was really intrigued about in his profiles of politicians was if they say that they're influenced by a writer, <laughs> he'll ask them about the writer and we'll know 10 times more about him. You know, he, so he absolutely eviscerates <laughs> Daniel Patrick Moynihan in, in that manner. But he also does an interview with um, Jerry Brown, in which he just completely catches him tongue-tied. I, so when I did, you know, kind of interview him, you know, he really just didn't have much recollection or interest in kind of talking about the stuff he'd written in the 60s. Another thing I asked him about was um, he's just can be so savage in criticizing the pretensions of politicians. I asked him if he feared that that kind of writing in the 70s helped contribute to the kind of not only his, but others, I, I would think of Mike Royko, too, um, contributed to the anti-government sentiment that helped you know, Reagan along the way. And he didn't really kind of get it. He didn't really kind of, you know, like really kind of wrap his mind around the question because to him, you know, what, what is it, Mark said, ruthless criticism of everything existing. You know, it's just like this natural metier, you know. Mm. Well, that certainly comes across in his essays in the New York Review of Books. And I wanted to ask you, I, I don't know if Wills has ever reviewed you, hmm. but if he hasn't, would you want to be reviewed by him given, <laughs> you know, given what he's done to be, I, I'm thinking of his review of Cy Hirsch's book on Kennedy, where he ends by saying, Hirsch wrote this book to destroy Kennedy's reputation. And what he's done instead is destroyed his own. Well, see, and that's what I love. There's no, there's no deference. You know, it's like to me, I cherish the idea of the Republic of Letters. That once that the words on the page, it doesn't matter whether you know the person, don't know the person. Your first, last, and only obligation is to the reader and to the truth as you see it, without fear or favor. And so, yes, I would be honored to be eviscerated by Gary Wills because, you know, I know it would be rooted in this depth of erudition and a critical mind that's, you know, without parallel, you know, and without an agenda. He models the identity of a, a critical intellectual, you know. He doesn't care who likes him. He does not care who likes him. And, of course, the most famous example of this, which, you know, I'd like, I don't know, we probably all run this kind of, like, scenario in our head, I'm going to admit it, you know, is when he shows up at the White House 
Uh, do you know the story? I do, but tell it. It's a great story. Yeah. One of the group of historians who are summoned by Barack Obama to say, you know, what wisdom do you have to offer me from the, the, the treasure chest of history about how I can be an awesome president? And Gary Will shows up and he says, get the hell out of Afghanistan because it's going to be another Vietnam. And then the second meeting comes and he's not invited, which, you know, says something about both Barack Obama and, and, and Gary Wills, right? And, you know, of course, he was vindicated in the fullness of time, but it took a long time. <laughs> you know, it took a long time. And I believe I, I've read him or heard him say about that meeting that the other historians in the room were extremely sycophantic. Um, he did not neglect to point that out. Yeah. And I, I'm kind of, you know, if you want to know what my you know, fantasy in life is, it's, it's to tell off a president, you know, to tell the truth to a president, you know. Including a potentially friendly one in, in the case of Obama. I'm sure, I, I suspect so. yeah. Wills voted for Obama and did not hold back. Well, I mean, obviously, criticism is a form of love because it's a form of respect. You know, it means I think you want to hear me. So I want to be heard. You, you left graduate school and you dabbled in journalism, but then you go back to history and you're a historian without formal academic training. And that happens to also be true of Gary Wills. He uh, does not have a PhD in history. He has a PhD, I believe, in classics or in Latin or something. But um, in any case, um, is part of what the appeal or maybe the draw, the confidence to write big books of history on these, you know, really wide canvases without the formal academic training? I mean, I really respect his confidence. You know, I don't know how much the connection is to what I try to do. But I think I kind of owe this maybe to like the world of University of Chicago, which is another kind of, you know, part of my formation that like basically any idea, no matter how widely accepted, popular, you know, can be just utter bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, to see how in a book like Reagan's America, which is really, you know, kind of my my stuff on Reagan is really just a footnote to what what he did in that book. You know, to see him say, well, Reagan says this about this college strike that he participated in, you know, in the 19 late 20s and early 30s. Here's what I learned actually looking at the newspaper accounts. It couldn't possibly have happened on this day. This couldn't have possibly happened. He made this up. No one remembers this, you know. And then, you know, um, having him say, well, and look at all the accounts of all the people he uh, saved from drowning in the newspaper. I think he wrote those himself. <laughs> you know, and just being like, yes, of course, this makes absolute sense. This guy's president. You would think that people would think to, like, you know, like, fact check the guy, right? But people just don't do that, you know. And, you know, I mean, I don't think that saying that dishonors, you know, PhD um, trained historians, right? Um, it has a lot more to do with kind of the world of journalism and pundits and, you know, popular history, I think. Um, but, you know, just the idea that, uh, you know, nothing's sacred, you know, is really, really important. And, the fact that he's willing to do this, you know, to the Catholic Church, 
you know? I mean, he literally has a book called Why Priests, in which he said they get the Bible all wrong, and if they took it seriously, we, there wouldn't be any priests, you know? I mean, that's how radical he can be, you know? It's like, oh, it turns out that, you know, um, the president is not the head of the military. The phrase commander-in-chief, that just meant he, basically he broke ties when, like, commanders in the field couldn't, you know, like, couldn't figure out, you know, whose authority, you know, trumped, right? Mm-hmm. But he's just willing to just go there, you know, just dig deeper and deeper and deeper. So one of the things when I, th- when I think about Wills, um, he's unsparing. Um, his book on Kennedy is, despite what he said about um, Hirsch's book on Kennedy, um, his book on Kennedy is devastating. But I, w- I want to read you a sentence that is actually in Nac- Nixon Agonistes um, that I-, I wanted to get your reaction to. He writes at the very end of the preface, and he's sort of cueing the reader. He says, I was never a Nixon hater. Hmm. I felt too sorry for the man. Right, right. That was actually, I think I honored that spirit and that I have a lot of readers who are like, I hated Nixon, but now I just feel, you know, I kind of feel pity the guy. I was wondering if that echoes for you or if your pity is considerably less. No, I pity him too. <laughs> but I think- You that, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, like- Henry Kissinger, who, you know, has his own, his own issues. But um, he said, you know, what this man could have become if someone would have just loved him, you know, which is just a certain kind of pity you have for the guy. He had all his brilliance and, and actually a lot of humane intent, you know. John Aloysius Farrell, who wrote a very good biography of Nixon, very much kind of goes more than I do into the idea that he was kind of his good and his good angels and his, you know, bad devil were at war with himself. And I, but I see that, you know, hmm. yeah. And so I've, I, you know, I, I try not to, you know, um, keep score when it comes to politicians. This guy's a bad guy. This guy's a good guy. I don't think that's kind of a distraction from the work. And, and of course, my subject is not the politicians. It's the public, right? Why, why are these guys embraced, you know, uh, which is a little, little kind of not, a little different from how Gary does things, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder, though, if for you, having read your books over time, it's become harder to... So in, in your first book on, on the Goldwater movement, you're dealing with a conservative movement that doesn't have power, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's in fact, it's written out of history. They're, right. they're the losers, right? Well, there's a lot more affection for them in that first book, yeah. That's what I'm wondering about. And then by, by your later books... They actually have power now, right. and their agenda is the national agenda. And I wonder how that has been for you as, as a kind of struggle to maintain a certain tone. Well, I mean, maybe I just got, you know, more accurate, you know, with the passage of time, you know, and more research and more reflection, you know. Well, do you look back at Before the Storm and think I was too nice to these guys? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can give you a specific example. And I've been thinking a lot about this as I kind of contemplate my next project so uh, i interviewed all, a lot of these guys uh, the early 1960s young americans for freedom types i sat down with a bunch of them for an interview uh at the capitol hill club which is kind of the republican social club and you know they were kind of telling me these war stories and uh one thing that was very exciting to me was remember this is the 90s and you and i and every other liberal is kind of trying to make sense of how we can turn the Democratic Party into a vehicle for 
liberalism for progress and not this kind of moderate milk toast, you know, kind of split the difference triangulation machine that Bill Clinton had turned it into. And that's what they had done with the Eisenhower era Republican Party. So I kind of saw them as role models for one thing. And I definitely saw them as kind of, you know, scrappy underdogs, which is how they kind of represented themselves. And I also kind of bought the idea, which I think has been pretty roundly debunked by historians in the fullness of time, that they had, you know, purged the dangerous elements from their um, movement and kind of turned it into a, a movement that, as William F. Buckley put it, a politician could subscribe to without fear of embarrassment. And, you know, one of the stories they told me about and that I researched on its own was when a bunch of these guys went to a 1961 conference of an organization called the National Student Association, which was kind of this umbrella, basically an umbrella organization for student councils. Now, the irony of this, as you probably know, is it turned out to be a CIA front, but let's leave that Minor to the detail. They saw it, as they always do, as this liberal hegemonic, you know, kind of machine, you know, for the deep state and, and the regime. And so yeah. they had it in mind to basically take it over. And they told me this whole story about how they used all sorts of means of subterfuge to win all the resolution votes to, you know, make them more robustly anti-communist. And they did so by kind of blending into the crowd by wearing suspenders and, you know, using walkie talkies and da, da, da. And at the time, you know, I, you can look at it and before the storm, I write about it as this kind of cool, you know, kind of political hijinks. You know, and then I, you know, by the time I'm writing Nixon line, I'm like, oh, wow, this is exactly the kind of thing by exactly the kind of people that people went to jail for during Watergate. You know, I thought about Richard Nixon, you know, saying if you wanted a job that was sensitive or possibly legal to do, you, you hire a healthy right wing exuberant. And, you know, the fact that Jeb Magruder and, um, you know, G. Good and Liddy were basically from this, you know, sort of group of people. Right. And you realize that, you know, these kind of healthy exuberant hijinks are actually in a lot of ways the seeds of january 6th has that made writing about the right less fun for you to me the pleasure in doing this work whether it's journalism or history is the pleasure of achieving some kind of rich understanding and communicating that understanding and also coming from a place of moral grounding and the power that can come from uh, making something as accurate as you can make it, but also having a moral valence to what you are reporting, right? I mean, whether you're writing journalism or doing doing history, you're, you're reporting, you know, you're trying to kind of come up with a convincing account of what happens. And I don't think that that's a morally you know neutral act because you know i think the values of liberalism and the left are are true <laughs> and good for the world and the values of conservatism and the right uh especially as they've evolved in the american context are bad for the world and that doesn't mean kind of pulling punches when i write about liberals and the left because i do a <laughs> you know a lot of that including to my allies like gary wills and it doesn't mean you know, not finding uh, saving grace in a lot of what conservatives do and believe, right? And Wills himself is is a very moral writer. And he's a moral writer. And so, I, you know, I write, first of all, and I think he does too, in my identity as a citizen. He also writes as a Christian. You know, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't believe this dude walked on water, you know. Uh, Gary may well, you know. But I do 
respect the radical truths of Christianity. And a lot of what Gary Wills is doing and all his writing about Christianity, which I enjoy great, a great deal about. I did an interview with him at a bookstore in Chicago about his book, Why Priests, is um, that he's willing to delve down to the radical roots of Christianity. I mean, I wouldn't be so interested in the project of American citizenship and studying American history if I didn't find something potentially redemptive in it, right? You know, I mean, no one, no one alive has probably written more devastatingly about the corruptions of the institutions of Christianity than Gary Wills, but that doesn't seem to have, you know, shaken his faith, right? I mean, literal faith. Rick, before we started recording, you said something about influences. Uh, this is the theme of the podcast. We've talked about one influence on you, but do you have something else you'd like to share about just influences in general and, and how you view them? You know, I'm not a huge influence guy. I think I've mostly kind of carved my own path with such a broad swath of influences that's kind of hard to point to it. I mean, people say they're influenced by a musician or an artist or a, a book or a writer. It's often, like, coincident with them having to run across that person at the right time. You know, it doesn't mean that they're the closest to their paradigm, right? It's just like, you know, it just happens to be, you know, everyone loves the albums that they listened to when they were, you know, 15, you know. So, you know, if I say, you know, I was really influenced by this one book, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good book, you know. Uh, I can point at some really goofy ones, you know, that, you know, got me thinking in the way I'm thinking, you know. So I'm really, you know, grateful for the opportunity to kind of um, raise up Gary Wills and think about, my own work in the context of his but you know it, it took me a little convincing to from you i think to, to get me even to do this well i'm very glad you did rick thank you so much for joining us and for your time and for this conversation thank you so much it's so great to be in touch Primary Sources is a co-production of Public Books and Type Media Center. Public Books is an online magazine of ideas, arts, and scholarship. You can learn more at publicbooks.org. Type Media Center is a nonprofit home for independent journalists. It is committed to building a more equitable future for journalism in the public interest. Learn more about its flagship programs at typemediacenter.org. Our show's executive producer is Caitlin Zaloom, the founding editor of Public Books. Our producer is DJ Kashmir. Our engineer is Jess Engabretson. Special thanks to Kelly McKinney, the publisher and managing editor of Public Books, and Taya Grobo, executive director of Type Media Center. See you all next week for a brand new episode. <laughs>